Thank you for joining us for this episode of ZB Talk, a production of the Zeta Beta Tau Foundation. This podcast was created to highlight some of the many amazing stories about the brothers of Zeta Beta Tau fraternity. We, the brothers of Zeta Beta Tau fraternity, believe that the development of the individual as a responsible, mature member of society is the primary goal of the university today. We believe that fraternity offers to the university community a unique, desirable, and successful means of achieving this goal. In fulfilling the purposes of fraternity, we dedicate ourselves to the principles of intellectual awareness, social responsibility, integrity, and brotherly love. What's the hour? It must be time for ZB Talk. This is Farron Lewitt, Sci University of Alabama, 1997. And Jonathan H. Levin, Alpha Kappa, University of Wisconsin, 2002. We're your hosts for this episode of ZB Talk. Daniel Frankenstein, Alpha Eta, University of California, Berkeley, 2004, who is a co-founder and partner at Janvest Capital Partners, a U.S.-based venture capital firm investing in enterprise-grade deep technologies coming out of Israel and commercialized here in the United States. Prior to Janvest, Daniel worked for Corporate Executive Board, which provides corporate executives with best practice research tools and templates. He led the expansion of a CEB office in Israel in 2008. Thanks for joining us, Daniel. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. So let's get started with uh, how you became a brother of ZBT. Sure. Um, so I um, was uh, actually knew about ZBT even before I went to college. A close family friend um, was a ZBT at Berkeley as well, Alpha Eta. Um, and so when I got to campus in the fall, I knew that it was a place I wanted to check out. Um, immediately connected with um, both uh, the guys that were there, the history, the values, um, and uh, never really looked back. Nice. And uh, as far as the brothers that you've maintained contact with now that you've been an alumnus for a number of years, uh, what has your alumni experience uh, been like? Yeah, you know, I think I've been really fortunate um, because my my ZBT experience was not just a Berkeley experience. It was really a national experience. Um, and so obviously, um, you know, I still have a number of really, really close friends um, from the house. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we maintain contact, uh, you know, our, we're friends as couples, our wives are friends. And so definitely have a, a really nice relationship with my, uh, Alpha Eta brothers. And we actually have a great, um, tradition. We all try and go to one away football game every year. Um, you know, that's a, a fun thing to do because when you're at a home game, you know, everybody kind of does their own thing. Everybody goes home at the end of the day. Uh, when you go to an away game, we all stay in the hotel together. We go out to meals and have a good time. So, um, you know, it's definitely been a, um, you know, fun to keep in contact with those guys. 
Um, but I also had a chance when I was an undergrad to serve as an undergraduate representative on the Supreme Council. Um, and so through that experience, actually built uh, more of a nationwide network, um, both with folks that were my age and in school at the time, but also with um, older alumni. Uh, so I've stayed in contact with a number of folks um, that I met sort of through that more um, sort of national experience. So, um, you know, I would say, you know, one of the most rewarding aspects of uh, being a ZVT is not only my Berkeley alumni group, but also um, the relationships I've been able to forge across the country. Oh, that's great. So tell me, you know, building on a uh, building on that, what was your greatest lesson that that Alpha Eta taught you? You know, I, I would say, uh, you know, fraternity leadership was one of the more unique um, leadership experiences I ever had. Um, you know, I was on the student government at Berkeley. I was a student senator, you know, had a chance to have that kind of a bigger platform. But it was being um, president of ZVT that I think was, um, you know, one of the more um, rewarding but challenging leadership experiences, um, mostly because, you know, very rarely when you're in a leadership position, are you confronted with the true impact of your decisions on those you love and care about. And I think one of the things about um, living and being in the same environment with those who are subject to your decision-making and um, are uh, you know, bearing the consequences, good and bad, of the things uh, that you're trying to do, you know, that has you think differently about decisions. They aren't theoretical, they're real, they're practical. Um, and so you know, that experience of thinking about the human element, thinking about the real implications of decisions, um, I think was um, a, a, a really fundamental lesson that I've tried to carry into my, into my business career. So, and you mentioned uh, serving as a undergraduate member of the Fraternity Supreme Council and the relationships that you've uh, had because of that. Uh, what else did that experience provide you uh, from a, serving on a, a board or um, just organizational development, that kind of thing? Yeah, you know, I think what that taught me <clears throat> was that uh, organizations are all, a lot of times larger and more complicated than most of that organization's members necessarily realize. Um, and so obviously to be um, exposed to the types of folks that were on the Supreme Council, um, those who had achieved um, phenomenal business success, um, and to see their commitment back to the fraternity, uh, to see the organization, the process, um, you know, that was, that was really um, impactful for me. Um, you know, obviously, you you don't really have a chance typically as a as an undergraduate, um, you know, to get on an airplane and go somewhere for a board meeting. Um, that is that is something I get to do today in the shoes that I wear today. But you know, having done that as a you know junior or senior in college makes those sorts of interactions a lot less intimidating when you get to do them for the first time. You know, out in the out in the business world. Great. Kind of switching gears here. Where did you grow up, Daniel? Um, I grew up in the city of San Francisco. I'm one of the uh, I'm one of the the few we call ourselves the the natives um, that uh, grew up in 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 the city of San Francisco. Um, grew up a uh, uh, big sports fan. The 49ers won four Super Bowls before I was 16. So um, hard not to be uh, pretty uh, pretty pretty dialed into that. 
very cool. So what was your childhood like uh, living there? Obviously, it sounds like you're a big sports fan, but what was it like growing up in, in the Bay Area during that time? You know, it was uh, it, it was great. I mean, it was sort of the 1980s um, and, 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 and 90s. Um, you know, obviously, San Francisco has really become um, this kind of tech capital of, of the world, so to speak. Um, back in those days, actually, San Francisco was more of a banking town. Um, most folks don't know this, but in those days, not only Wells Fargo, but also Bank of America uh, and a number of large financial institutions were headquartered in San Francisco. Um, but I had a, a phenomenal childhood. I mean, one of the great things about San Francisco is not just the city, but you know your access to nature and your access to so much great stuff just a short drive away. So from redwoods to hiking to just the natural beauty of Northern California, you know, we, uh, we, we had a great, you know, opportunity to take advantage of that. The other thing about growing up in a city in the 80s, when that was um, not really something that a lot of folks did, you also come into contact with people that are different than you. And, you know, you, you, you learn about different cultures, you learn about different people. And I feel that that um, has, has absolutely held me in good stead. We also, as kids, um, you know, had an opportunity to do a lot of travel and, uh, you know, saw different parts of the U.S., um, saw different parts of the world. So I, I had a just a phenomenal, um, you know, childhood, phenomenal um, time growing up in, in, in San Francisco. And, um, you know, interestingly enough, uh, when I um, one of the reasons I chose to go to Berkeley was I just loved the Bay Area. Um, and it was a great opportunity to sort of be away, but also be still sort of close to home. Always thought I would, uh, uh, you know, leave the Bay Area for a year or two and then come home. It's been about 15 years and I'm still working my way back to the Bay Area, but I haven't uh, haven't been able to do that quite yet. Nice. So you were, you mentioned, uh, you know, San Francisco being a banking town. Your father, George, uh, was an investment banker. Did he inspire your career? So, you know, I, I would say that I always grew up around investment lingo um, and uh, and sort of uh, the the investment business. Um, and so I wouldn't necessarily say that it inspired what what I decided to do, because ultimately, you know, the world of venture is very different than sort of private wealth management or investment banking. But it definitely inspired me. Um, uh, from more on the, um, the the positive impact you can have on people's lives when you help them create economics. Um, you know, economics are freedom. Economics are, you know, for, for so many people, um, you know, a way to really better their lot. And, you know, watching the impact that my father had on countless families, helping them, you know, increase their wealth um, and, uh, and have the freedom that comes with that was very inspiring. And his work ethic, um, is, and, and continues to be inspiring. He is 77 years old and goes to the office every day. Well, now he's commuting to his home office, but, uh, um, uh, given our, our, our pandemic, but, um, you know, his, his work ethic always being the first guy there in the morning, um, always being the last guy to leave and, you know, but still finding a way to, be at every baseball practice, um, you know, be at every baseball game, um, you know, every music lesson, uh, you know, definitely uh, a, an, an, an inspiring figure in my life. Tell us about your experience uh, being in the UC Berkeley Student Senate. You know, that was a, that was a very interesting experience. Um, you know, uh, I, I, I sort of thought I, I was in um, student politics in high school as well. 
and I sort of thought that I'd leave that behind when I um, when I came to came to Berkeley. Um, you know, I was pretty busy my freshman year. I joined ZBT. Um, you know, kind of getting to know college and, and and all of that. But ultimately, the end of my freshman year, I sort of caught the bug again, and I decided to run for the student senate. So I um, I ran a campaign that essentially was me running around campus for two weeks, yelling, "Vote Frankenstein! He's no monster." Um, and to uh, to tell you how smart Berkeley students are, um, I was this top, the second uh, highest vote getter that year. Um, anyway, uh, uh, so I was elected at the end of my freshman year, took my seat um, at the beginning of my sophomore year, and two weeks into school, sophomore year, 9-11 happened. Um, and uh, that really changed the campus. Um, it was a really uh, divisive time. Um, there was a significant amount of um, sort of conspiracy theory, anti-American, a good degree of anti-Israel, anti-Semitism that sort of boiled up to the surface during that time. And I did my best on the Student Senate um, to try and use that platform to refute some of the most outlandish claims and, and, and really be a voice of thoughtful reason um, in a sea of what was um, some pretty challenging rhetoric. Uh, but I will say it was an incredible experience. Um, uh, it was another opportunity to be um, put with people and to work with people who are different than you, uh, which I think is really, um, really phenomenal. Uh, you know, Berkeley elects 20 student senators at large from 32,000 students. Um, and so you have really interesting constituencies um, that, that you get to work with. And I, I still have some really nice relationships from folks that, um, you know, I served on the Senate with. In fact, two, two of my Senate colleagues are now uh, California State Assembly uh, representatives, um, one Republican, one Democrat. Um, uh, you know, a number of those, um, you know, relationships are still folks I'm in um, good contact with today. So, you know, one of the great things about my Berkeley experience is I had a really diverse um, set of, of, of friends through both, you know, my time in the fraternity as well as my time on, on the student government. And, you know, my hope is that, you know, building those personal relationships with people um, who think differently, pray differently, eat differently, act differently, building those personal relationships, that's how you have an opening to have those tough conversations. Um, and, um, and so one of the things that being on the Berkeley Senate taught me was, you know, the importance of building trust with people so that you could have, um, you know, those, those, uh, those tough conversations. So you, um, served as chapter president of Alpha Eta and, uh, obviously on the student Senate, uh, curious about, uh, your thoughts on comparing and contrasting serving in those roles, uh, and being a co-founder and partner of a company, uh, we'll get more into specifics on Janvest uh, further on in the uh, conversation, but comparing and con comparing and contrasting those two roles. Sure, you know, I I would say you know, and 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 I alluded to this a little earlier. Um, one of the interesting things about being both, uh, you know, president of Alpha Eta and a student senator was on the student senate, we were by definition making decisions for the student body at large. 
we were allocating um, capital to student groups. We were making decisions about, um, you know, student housing, but it was very much sort of macro decision making. Um, what is best for the school as a whole? How do you allocate, um, you know, student fee capital to student groups who are requesting that for their budgets? Um, and you sort of are taking this kind of very high level 50,000 foot approach to your decision making. And the decision making has real impact on people, but it is also at the same time to a degree theoretical, because rarely do you come into contact, um, you know, with the folks uh, sort of at a, at a deeply personal level that uh, have an, are impacted by your decisions. Um, and, and, you know, I, it could not be more different from being president of the fraternity, whereby you literally live with the people who are impacted by your decisions. Are we going to do meal service at this time? Are we going to do it at that time? Are we going to, um, you know, have this social event or that social event? What's, you know, if we're going to do philanthropy, what's that going to look like? What are we going to do? What, you know, are we changing the time of our chapter meetings? When we do our chapter meetings, what are we doing? Are we doing things in the community? I mean, the list goes on and on and on. But every decision you make when you're chapter president is truly something that impacts you, your friends, your brothers, and the people you live with and the house that you live in. Um, and so you, you just come face to face with, um, you know, the impact of your decisions in a very different way. And by the way, I think having both experiences played significantly into my, my co-founding and my current job at Janvest because I actually think the best leaders, be they political or in business, at can actually have both approaches to leadership. They can take the deeply personal approach, understanding that their decisions affect real people. But at the same time, they can also see that there is a macro for the betterment of, um, of the greater good that is also, I think, important in decision making. And the difference between the two and, under, and recognizing the circumstances that require a difference between the two. So, Daniel, uh with your with your passion for Israel, I know you were you were talking about being on campus at a very uh, divisive time during nine eleven. Did you develop your passion for Israel during that time, or would, did that happen before nine uh, eleven? So I was very much. Um, I grew up in a household that was very much supporters of Israel. Um, when I was a kid, we traveled to Israel and, um, you know, that was very important to um, my parents uh, as a bit of a personal background. Um, you know, both of my parents' families sort of escaped the Holocaust um, and, and um, you know, came to the United States and really, um, you know, grew up, at, you know, as seeing Israel as sort of the the hedge against another Holocaust as the sort of Jewish people's insurance policy. My, um, uh, my first political memory actually as a kid um, was uh, my father was campaign chairman of the Federation um, when I was a young kid and uh, hosted a rally outside of the then Soviet consulate in San Francisco. Um, and, you know, he held me up like, like Simba the lion and I yelled, let my people go in, uh, in, a, in a microphone and a rally. 
And and so, you know, I I in you know, my parents smuggled books and calculators to Refuseniks in Russia, um, you know, in the late seventies. Um, you know, so definitely grew up in a um in a household where um, you know, our faith and our culture um was a source of pride. Um and that the um sort of twentieth century manifestation of that was Israel. And and so, you know, definitely grew up in a um in a in a household uh that that supported that. But um 9-11 and being on the Berkeley campus was actually the first time I had to confront my identity and challenges to that identity. Um, you know, I always grew up in a very friendly, um, you know, very friendly environment. Um, you know, even though I went to a, you know, a San Francisco public magnet public high school with 700 folks in my class um, that were from every background imaginable, there was never, uh, I, I never experienced anti-Semitism. I never experienced anti-Zionism. I never experienced hate in general, but um, I did at Berkeley. Um, and uh, and so uh, I didn't, um, I wouldn't say that I forged my, um, you know, uh, uh, feelings about Israel at, um, at Berkeley. Um, you know, that happened much earlier in my life. But what I learned at Berkeley was that I was linked to my identity, whether I liked it or not, and that I had a responsibility um, in a thoughtful way um, to defend and to um, be an activist for, um, you know, right, truth, um, human rights, uh, and, uh, and, 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 and all of the things that I, you know, grew up knowing that, 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 that Israel stood for. So, um, so I would say, you know, that, that experience definitely, um, sort of sharpened my, um, my, my views. Great. So, so after Berkeley, where did you start your career? Sure. So, um, I moved to Washington, DC when I graduated from Berkeley, I originally thought that, um, I was going to continue sort of into politics. Um, but after, uh, doing some, some interviews on Capitol Hill, um, it became very obvious to me that the altruism and activism of the college campus um, did not translate to the halls of Congress. Um, and so I decided that um, I was going to give the business world a try. And um, I uh, went to work for a company called the Corporate Executive Board. Um, they were a uh, they were traded on the New York Stock Exchange um, and. Um, are what's, uh, as you mentioned in your intro, they're a best practice research firm um, that helps executives at large enterprise solve the most common corporate business challenges. So if you think about, you know, um, what you could find publicly available on Google as sort of one end of the spectrum, if you have a question about something, um, or the totally opposite end of the spectrum is you hire a McKinsey or a Bain or a BCG for hundreds of thousands of dollars a week to come in and do a project for you, the corporate executive board sort of sat in that middle ground of saying, hey, there are common corporate business challenges <clears throat> and there are great companies across the world, across sector and across industry <clears throat> that are solving those problems really effectively. And wouldn't it be an incredible resource for executives to have 
sort of essentially a retainer engagement with a firm like CEB, Corporate Executive Board, where they would have unlimited access to these best practices and not just the theoretical, but the actual tools, templates, um, and, uh, and, um, you know, all of the things that uh, would be, um, you know, helpful as, as these corporate executives make um, really big decisions. One of the other reasons why CEB saw such success <clears throat> is that, um, you know, executives at large enterprises don't get promoted because of the project that McKinsey did for them. They get promoted when they are, you know, use the example of a chief financial officer, a CFO. If you are just a wizard at your strategic planning, your budgeting, your forecasting, your financial planning and analysis, your investor relations, those are the things you're supposed to know how to do. And the best CFOs get promoted when they do those things in a great way. Um, the corporate executive board essentially gave executives the tools to know how their peers at the best companies globally were doing things the best. Um, so uh, they were growing unbelievably um, back in uh, in 2004. Um, and they uh, uh, sort of made the decision that they were going to hire a bunch of people internally, work uh, you know at the entry level, work us like crazy, throw all of us against the wall, and whoever stuck after a year would get promoted and then do it again and then stuck and get promoted. Um, and so had a really great opportunity that, you know, um, you know, 18, 24 months after being in school, I had my own client base, um, and, um, you know, had a really incredible meteoric rise over, um, sort of a five-year period, um, that I lived and worked in Washington, D.C. Um, one of the interesting things that happened when I was at the corporate executive board in those days was the, the business was expanding like crazy. Um, you know, it wasn't just... You know, when I started there, it was just employees in Washington, D.C. Um, then they started moving people to do remote work. And this was in, you know, the early 2000s. You know, this remote work was not a thing. Um, and they sort of set up these satellites around the country. They ultimately opened up a Chicago office, a San Francisco office. Then they opened up a London office. They opened up an office in India. I remember having a conversation with the general manager over my group. And I said, well, why not Israel? And he said, you know, well, what's what's going on in Israel? And I said, you know, uh, Israel has the third largest number of publicly traded companies in the United States for a foreign country. Um, that's just behind Canada and China. Um, there's actually a lot going on in Israel and there's a hunger for globally sourced best practices. We should give it a shot. Anyway, to save you uh uh, a whole host of, of business plans and um, and sort of the like, uh, 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 I'll save you all that time. Um, they made the decision that um, they would send me to Israel to sort of open their branch office there and um, and and look to establish a um, sort of a, a client base locally in Israel. So, Danny, you've been quoted as saying sometimes you call yourself the accidental Israeli and, and uh, that you're a Zionist, but went uh, to Israel because you're a capitalist. Uh, talk a little bit about that. Yeah, no, of, of course. Um, you know, one of the things that, um, you know, I, I uh, you know, I always have been passionate about Israel sort of in my in my home life. 
Um, but I'm a very dedicated, thoughtful business person in my in my work life. And I never actually thought those two would meet. Um, and when I suggested that the corporate executive board consider doing more business in Israel, um, I was not actually expecting them to take me seriously. And I certainly was not expecting to move there in order to do it. <laughs> um, that, that was, um, you know, it's one of those things, be careful what you wish for, right? Um, and so I found myself and wound up in Israel um, as a dual citizen with language skill and ingrained in Israel's business environment, um, sort of by accident in, in the sense that that was definitely not, on, not in my plans. Um, and that was not something that I had, uh, you know, thought was going to be part of my career trajectory. Um, and and truly, um, you know, having been out of school for five years at that point and, um, you know, being ingrained in the workforce, you know, I was very motivated to, um, you know, work hard, uh, you know, to to, um, you know, increase my finances. This wasn't a. Um, this wasn't necessarily any sort of a um, altruistic uh, or ideological adventure. This was very much a business business planned capitalist um, endeavor to try and increase the bottom line of the company I worked for at the time and that I was a shareholder. So you uh, you moved to Israel uh, working for corporate executive board, and then at some point. Uh, the idea and the, the process of establishing Janvest came about. Uh, how did that come about? Absolutely. So um, I built the corporate executive board's business in Israel for a couple of years. Um, and uh, we were actually very fortunate. We found a, a very fertile um, ground for our products and services, built the business to, um, you know, about 20 Israeli companies, some of which, um, you know, folks that may have heard of like Teva Pharmaceuticals or Bezek, the big a telecom company or the big banks in Israel, Bank Apoa, Lean, Bank Liumi. Um, but we also worked with a lot of these NASDAQ traded, you know, a couple hundred million dollar a year companies um, that folks have not heard of, which are like Ormat, Orbotech, Retalix, Saragon Networks, Audio Codes. Um, and so through that experience, I saw that I was, um, um, you know, the, I, I built this incredible network and, and um, you know, was truly ingrained in the upper echelons of Israel's business environment, but I was also missing the most exciting part of what was going on in Israel, which was completely apparent. It was the early stage venture ecosystem and all the startups and the entrepreneurs. Um, and so in sort of coordination with CEB, um, uh, I sort of slowly diminished my day-to-day -day responsibilities with them. Um, and then ultimately uh, uh, sort of left to um, co-found Janvest Capital. Um, and really the thesis behind founding Janvest was, you know, I was living and working on the ground in Tel Aviv, yet I was an American and an American business person. And one of the things that, that I observed in, you know, meeting entrepreneurs, which is um, hard not to do when you're in Tel Aviv, um, is that um, incredible technology acumen, um, incredible innovative way about thinking about products for large enterprises, um, almost no business acumen, and 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 even less ability to enter the U.S. market in a um, you know safe uh, and 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 sort of thoughtful way. 
And when I mean safe, I don't mean physical safety. I mean safe for your um, company resources. Um, so our thesis in launching Janvis was very much about pairing the best enterprise technologies coming out of Israel with the best capital market in the history of the world, which is the United States. Um, and really being that bridge and that red carpet for the best entrepreneurs in Israel um, to their dream customers here in the United States. Um, and so I co-founded Janvest with uh, my partner, uh, Brian Rosenzweig. Um, Brian and I actually met, uh, He we went to different schools, but we were um, we met um, in college and actually ran into each other in central Tel Aviv, um, realized we lived a couple of blocks apart um, and, um, and decided that uh, we both had a similar vision for what we could build um, on the, uh, uh, in the world of venture capital in Israel. And uh, we've been doing it almost 10 years now. So, Daniel, I, I feel slightly slighted because you and I ran into each other in Israel as well, and we haven't gone on to start uh, any company. But uh, perhaps, It's about timing, that... Farron. It's yes, about yes, timing. Yes. There you go. So um, is there any meaning behind uh, Janvest, the name? Uh, you know, it's a, um, it's a, uh, it actually started off as an acronym, um, but we don't actually tell people what it stands for now because it's, uh, it's pretty outdated. Um, but at the time, uh, we it. thought it was uh, we thought it was pretty cool. But the name stuck, um, and uh, and you know, after a while in my line of work, um, you know, your your funds have Roman numerals after them. It's a little harder to uh, update that kind of thing. But we'll we'll see what happens. Got it. Uh, so before the pandemic, uh, which we're currently facing, uh, how often were you going to Israel, uh, and uh, what uh, what was that experience like? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I lived in Israel for almost five years, um, moved back to the U.S. in 2012-2013. And sort of since that time, um, have been going to Israel, I would say on a good year, it's uh, three to four times a year. Uh, There was one year I had to go eight times. Um, which, uh, which, you know, was, uh, was, was a bit of a challenge, but, but I would say what, what was unique about my experience and what I think is also unique about our firm is that we, we truly have our foot in both places. We have a team in Israel, native Hebrew speakers, um, you know, uh, veterans from the Israel defense forces, veterans of the venture industry, um, successful entrepreneurs, that are our ground game in Israel. But both Brian and I, who have moved back to the U.S. and who regularly go to Israel, uh, usually I would say quarterly is kind of the, the average. But we have deep relationships in the ecosystem in Israel. Um, we know all the corporate decision makers in Israel. We know all the other venture firms. We have deep relationships with the entrepreneurs. And that's not even to mention our 27-company portfolio of folks that give us um, really interesting inroads into various aspects of the ecosystem, everything from um, the technology meetups to the, um, you know, military alumni associations that um, spawn so many of Israel's great entrepreneurs. Um, And, and, you know, so we always sort of joke because my, um, my, my partner in Israel, um, her name is Daphna Winokur Biran. Um, Daphna actually spent five years in the United States. um, And, so went to Columbia Business School, worked for SAP, the big German software company in New York. Um, and, you know, between her time in the U.S. and our time in Israel, um, we actually have sort of a mini cultural meeting of the minds every time we have our team partner meetups. 
um, which helps us, I think, be more effective um, um, stewards of our investors' money because um, we understand the cultural uh, um, differences between the U.S. and Israel, and we're able to deal with them on our team so that when it filters to our portfolio companies and the thoughtful advice we try and provide, um, it takes those sorts of things into uh, into account. So other than uh, being on a plane uh, eight times a year uh, back and forth to Israel in that one particular year, uh, what's the most challenging aspect of uh, running a multinational company? And I guess looking at it both uh, pre-COVID uh, pandemic and, and now uh, with the current environment. Yeah, no, it's a it's a really um, it's a really great question. Um, so so I would say first and foremost. You know, we we actually make our life a little bit easier than I think some other firms. And and I, you know, quite frankly, have a lot of respect for a lot of other firms that have such a broad mandate um, because I'm not sure I would be able to keep it straight. Um, but for us, you know, our view is there are some really particularly interesting sectors in Israel that have really direct translation to the U.S. market and that we really want to focus in those areas. Um, and and so that actually, uh, in terms of running a multinational business, that actually makes our life a lot easier because we actually out front and before we even look at a company, take as a um, as a given that the tastes and preferences of consumers in Tel Aviv are going to be very different than the tastes and preferences of consumers in San Francisco, Pittsburgh, Florida, New York, wherever it might be. And by being honest with ourselves that those differences exist, we choose to stay away from businesses that assume those differences don't exist. So we focus on what we define as deep enterprise technology. These are software solutions for large enterprises. So think about cybersecurity for the financial services industry, um, uh, you know, DevOps comp- uh, uh, businesses, um, you know, for large software companies. Um, think about IoT, think about connectivity, uh, think about the digitization of legacy infrastructure, think about predictive maintenance for industrial machinery. Um, all these, uh, we, we are um, straight down the fairway enterprise software investors. So the thesis we have is that a bank in Israel has the same security problems as Bank of America. Um, a large multinational corporation in Israel has the same um, cloud security needs and data needs and native application needs as an equivalent business in the United States. And over the past 10 years, I think we can speak with a good degree of, um, of, of authority and say that that has very much rung true. So we stay out of anything that deals with Consume, direct to consumers. We stay out of anything that's in a highly regulated environment or pre-regulatory environment. So we don't do anything in the medical field. We don't do anything that has an FDA approval process. Um, we stay out of anything that that could potentially have some what we call non-business risks. Um, so I would say in terms of challenges, we try and make our life as easy as possible. But I will tell you, the major challenge is what I hit on earlier, which is cultural. Um, The reality is Israelis and Americans speak differently, even if they speak the same language. Um, And we actually joke that our entrepreneurs speak perfect English, but not a word of American. 
um, and that we are here to be the middleman to make that translation. So I would say the biggest challenge for us is translating this unbelievable technology built by this unbelievable team that is right out of Israel's elite intelligence services that has versioned a product for civilian use that has a huge market and actually building a business around it. Um, and, uh, and then translating that from a strategy, people, sales, infrastructure perspective to um, enter the U.S. market. The other thing I'll mention related to our current COVID um, new world, um, first and foremost, um, Israeli companies, because they are far from their target market, are already doing a lot of their initial customer and investor interactions via Zoom. Um, we as a team do all of our, and have done for years, all of our um, multiple time per week partners meetings via Zoom. Um, that's always how we've done it. Um, a lot of us work from different places and work from home because we have things at odd hours of the morning or evening. Um, and so this hasn't been as much of a, uh, a shock to us because um, of the way we work. The, the final point I'll make here is that uh, Israeli companies um, are very well positioned to deal with business interruptions in a way that their American counterparts are not. Um, and what do I mean by that? You know, and, and I'm not referring necessarily to the geopolitical challenges in Israel, but, um, you know, Israelis have compulsory military service, um, you know, two years for women, uh, three years for men. Um, what a lot of folks don't realize is that most Israelis as well have reserve duty obligations up until age 40. Um, and because of that, your chief product engineer could be called to military reserve duty at a moment's notice um, and off the grid for two weeks, despite a customer deadline you may have. So Israeli companies are actually build in redundancies in a way that their American counterparts do not. Um, these companies are more thoughtful about work from home, work remote, um, and um, and being efficient with less. Um, so we've actually found across our portfolio um, that uh, this hasn't been as disruptive. Um, the the other piece to this um, point is that you know Israel took a very aggressive um, a very aggressive uh, uh, approach to the virus from day one. Um, last week, they were able to open up um, business offices. I think this week they opened up bars and restaurants. Um, and so uh, so I think there's been, you know, also a decent public policy response there. All of our portfolio companies are back in the office. So what aspect of your career has been the most meaningful so far, Daniel? You know, it, 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 it gets back to one of your um, earlier questions about um, you know, the inspiration coming from my father, uh, you know, over the last um, 12 to 18 months, um, we've harvested a number of our early portfolio positions um, and generated some, um, some, some significant returns for a lot of our early investors um, and sort of seeing their reaction um, and, and seeing it all come full circle that, you know, they bet on me. I then went and bet on a number of entrepreneurs, um, and then those bets worked. 
and 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 came to fruition and exceeded our expectations. And then I'm able to turn around and write a check to those folks who originally bet on me. That sort of full circle, that kind of round trip has just been by far the most fulfilling um, part of, of, of uh, to, to this point, the most fulfilling aspect of my career. Um, because, you know, it, in, in, in my line of work, there is true benchmarks for success. There's true benchmarks for um, you either did it or, 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 or you didn't. Um, and, um, and so, you know, to have the opportunity to turn to our investors, especially those early investors that, you know, we were young kids, we had no idea what we were doing. Um, we had a vision, we had a model, but we did not have a track record. We did not have any of, um, any of the, uh, um, things that looking back on it, we should have had when we went out to market to raise our first fund. And ironically, it's those early investors, those first folks that put money with us that actually uh, have achieved thus far the biggest return. Although I will say off the record that we have a lot more in the oven. So it's an exciting time. But um, but it's really rewarding to be able to um, deliver great returns to our, our investors, especially those early folks. And by the way, I'm a. Uh, I'm a, I'm a people person. I love people. One of the best aspects of my job is getting to know people, is building these relationships with our investors, which is a nationwide network of you know over 150 investors, um, big, small, private individuals, family offices, institutions, and everything in between. But ultimately, these are all people. And the opportunity to meet these folks, develop relationships with these folks, and then hand them back a check has been uh, incredibly rewarding. That's great to hear. Uh, and looking back on your, your career thus far, I'm curious of what advice you would give your 18, 19 or 20 year old self, our undergraduate brothers that are uh, in, in uh, college right now, uh, if they want to be doing uh, what you currently do, uh, what would you sh- what would you share with them? Yeah, you know, that's that's a great question. And, and it's funny because I, um, I did a Zoom call with a high school senior class um, a couple weeks ago where I got a very similar question. Um, and, you know, my, my answer might surprise you. The, the first thing I would say to folks is do not define um, at, the, at the start of your race what success in that race looks like. Because by doing that, you're actually limiting the opportunities that you will consider. So my first piece of advice is be open and, and and be willing to consider all opportunities, even if those opportunities may not be on that path that you had in your head or that kind of predefined um, uh, you know type of um, type of thought. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, um, I would say go to work for a bigger company right out of school and put yourself in a position to learn and to and to be um, and to be taught by others who have experience. One of the greatest things that the corporate executive board did for me is it literally put me on a circuit of learning different corporate functions. Um, There was continued learning and development um, at all um, sort of parts of, uh, at, at, at all levels of the organization. You know, my first two weeks at the corporate executive board were essentially spent in a classroom. 
Um, every time I got promoted, I, you know, have learning and development opportunities, the ability to shadow with people, the ability to joint travel with senior executives. Um, you know, I'd listen in on the corporate earnings call. Um, all those experiences, um, all those relationships, uh, that played a huge role into me being able to be an investor and actually add value. Um, because I know how corporations make decisions. I know what a procurement process looks like. I know how um, executives at large companies think about their budgeting process. Um, I, I, I have um, tools that I can bring to my current day interactions that I would not have had unless I had um, sort of the corporate executive board experience. So I would say, um, you know, don't predefine what success looks like. Go to work for a big company that has resources to actually teach you, put you on a rotational program, um, and really help you build a skill set. And then if you want to be an entrepreneur and you want to go start something, you have a set of tools to know what that looks like. Um, and to me, that helps you make much more informed, thoughtful decisions. And it's those informed, thoughtful decisions that tend to um, yield the best results. Very nice. Uh, so your wife, Arielle, is a correspondent for ABC News. How did you meet her? Huh. Um, so we actually, uh, she is a correspondent for ABC News. We actually met um, uh, in college as well. She was not at Berkeley. She actually went to college with my business partner, Brian Rosenzweig. Um, we met, uh, we all of us met at a political conference when we were, um, when we were in school. Uh, my wife went to Indiana University um, and uh, we became friends through that sort of political uh, conference and, 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 and group. Um, and then my wife, uh, she was a year behind me in school. I moved to Washington, D.C. to start at the corporate executive board. Um, she moved to Washington, D.C. a year later. Um, and so we, uh, we, we dated for four years in Washington, D.C. Um, and, um, and then uh, when I had this opportunity to move to Israel um, for the corporate executive board, um, that was, uh, that was the moment when, uh, when I said, you know what, we're, we're doing this together. Um, so we, uh, so we got engaged. She moved to Israel with me. Uh, we moved together. Um, and she started a master's program at, um, the interdisciplinary center in Herzliya. And she got a master's in diplomacy and conflict studies. Um, after she graduated her master's degree, um, having not spent a day in media, having not studied journalism, having um, spent more of her time in sort of political science and, as I mentioned, diplomacy and conflict studies, my wife had an opportunity, and I'll spare you the funny story. My wife had an opportunity to um, uh, audition for a part-time news anchor job at Israel Channel One TV. Um, they were looking for a part-time replacement um, uh, anchor uh, while one of their anchors went on maternity leave. And to make a very uh, funny and entertaining story uh, short, given our time constraints, um, they screen tested 10 people and hired her on the spot. And my wife got her start in broadcast journalism on Israel Channel 1 TV um, out of the Romema neighborhood in Jerusalem. Um, so my wife uh, uh, started um, and she was the uh, ended up being the weekend evening anchor um, uh, for um, Israel Channel 1 TV. Um, uh, in English, she was broadcasting in English. Uh, it, it, at that time, Israel had daily newscasts in Hebrew, English, and Arabic, um, which are all official languages of Israel. 
And so um, that's how she got started in the news business. When we moved back to the U.S. in 2013, uh, 2012, 2013, um, my wife actually got a job offer from the ABC affiliate in Oklahoma City, um, which is uh, ironically where she grew up. So uh, we made the uh, normal move when you move from Israel to back to the U.S. Uh, we moved from Tel Aviv to Oklahoma City. Um, and so my wife spent four years at the ABC affiliate in Oklahoma City. She started off as a general assignment reporter, was then um, uh, promoted to weekend evening anchor, and then spent the final two years in Oklahoma City as the weekday morning anchor. Um, and then she sort of had her, um, you know, you kind of get that, that, that call that changes your career. Um, she got an offer from ABC News National, uh, so the network news, um, responsible for Good Morning America, World News Tonight with David Muir. Um, she had an opportunity to do that um, here, uh, here in New York. So um, we moved to New York in April of uh, 2017, um, where my wife has been a correspondent for ABC News ever since. Amazing story. Uh, thanks for sharing that. Uh, as we uh, wrap up our time here, a couple of just uh, final questions. Uh, what's the best piece of advice you've ever received? Hmm. Um, best piece of advice I ever received was on the first day that I was at the corporate executive board. One of the founders of the firm said, if you take care of your clients, the money will come. If you prioritize the money, you will never take care of your clients. And well. What? Why do you give back to various organizations and causes, Dan? You know, it's it's the various organizations and causes that have had the most dramatic impact on my career. Um, uh, everything from the personal and professional networks that I've built because of those organizations, but also um, the leadership experiences that I've been able to have um, within those organizations. Um, I'm a um, you know, I'm a big proponent of. Um, doing fewer things and doing them right and fully, um, as opposed to doing everything in sort of a, uh, you know, inch deep way. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm passionate about supporting organizations that have um, had an impact in my life um, in hopes that they will impact similarly um, other folks. Well, Brother Frankenstein, thank you for sharing your time with us. Uh, you do provide a, a wonderful example for our brothers. Uh, thank you for your support of the Zeta Beta Foundation and the undergraduate and alumni brothers of ZBT. I was just going to say thank you guys. I mean, I know you guys work day in and day out um, to keep uh, a really important organization running and thriving. Um, and so, you know, you guys keep the lights on in a place that means a lot to a lot of folks. And so, you know, definitely from, 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 from this one alumni back to you guys, thank you for the work you do. And our thanks to Hunter Lang, Gamma Mu, University of Memphis, 2013, for our music and production support. As always, it's great to be a ZBT.